Okay, open your Bibles, please, to Mark chapter 3. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. We're on a journey through the book of Mark, and since most of you were not with us on this journey, it's actually a perfect place to jump in. Some of the great themes of the gospel of Mark are on display in these brief verses, chapter 3, verse 20 through 35. I'll begin by reading it to you and asking God to bless this reading of his word that his spirit would apply it to our hearts. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He's driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He's guilty of an eternal sin. Jesus said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. And then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is the very word of the living God. Family relationships can be complicated, can't they? As you get older, you start to realize that things change. As you grow up and gain a new level of independence, uh, first symbolized by the sound of car keys and privileges extended to you, and then really embodied in a most profound way when you move out of your parents' house, uh, going to college is a huge step. And one of those moments that starts to raise your awareness of your own independence, uh, that you now are in a place of relative autonomy. Granted, your parents still pay for your entire existence, and without them you would die of pennilessness and starvation. But they have found a way to get you here in most cases. And there was likely... Some kind of tearful goodbye as you got on the plane or as they dropped you off yesterday or as they still are, are kind of watching you through that window over there. So 
All of that is a reminder this morning of that poignant reality that the baby bird is raised to be launched from the nest at some time. And it's not easy for a family to figure out those dynamics, to see the maturing of a child and all the hopes and dreams and aspirations that parents have for their, their children to be all that God has called them to be is, is just part of that family dynamic as a, a young person grows towards adulthood and gains independence. Well, Jesus also had family dynamics, and they were complicated like all relationships in a fallen world. Now, Jesus was the sinless member of his family, and so I think that only made things more complicated because he never contributed any sin to any conversation or any relationship. He was never rebellious. He was never uh, short with his words. He was never uh, overly aggressive in any sinful way with his brothers and sisters. Jesus was the perfect sibling Uh, not just the sibling the parents liked the most. We all understand that. He was genuinely perfect. And his relationship with his siblings is featured throughout the Gospels. And the Gospel of Mark seems to pay the most attention to it in this passage and in a passage where Jesus' four brothers and his sisters are mentioned. His four brothers are named in Mark chapter 6. And apparently Joseph has died. His father has died at this point. That's what most uh, people who study the Bible believe because he's never mentioned after those early narratives, likely dying sometime after Jesus's uh, visit to the temple, maybe when Jesus was in his early teenage years. And so his mother Mary, a widow, his brothers, uh, four at least of them, and several sisters, likely two sisters, made up Jesus's immediate biological family. And this passage continues Mark's theme of trying to identify what does it mean to be a disciple, and how is that distinct from being part of the crowd? There is a difference in the Bible between those who are interested in Jesus for various reasons and those who are opposed to Jesus and follow him for all the wrong reasons and those who are closely following Jesus, identified as disciples. And that's what Mark has been talking about as opposition to Jesus' ministry has grown with the scribes and the Pharisees now actively together plotting against Jesus and trying to undermine him because of his surging popularity, massive crowds pressing towards Jesus to receive the benefits that he has to offer in his healing ministry and in his feeding of the multitudes. But now a a called group of 12 disciples, apostles, has been identified in the middle of chapter 3. And after their calling out and the dedication of these 12 disciples. This is the scene that follows. And it's a scene that teaches us briefly this morning what it means to be a part of Jesus's true family. And there's several things happening in this passage because it's one of Mark's wonderful literary abilities to arrange something so complex yet beautiful, so clear but so profound. It's called a Markin sandwich, uh, probably a more fancy literary name for that, but it is close to lunchtime. So uh, a sandwich has bread and then stuff inside and then bread again. And you see that here in the mention of Jesus's family in verse 21. And then again at the end of the passage in verse 31 to 34. 
this section is surrounded by the announcement of Jesus' family who are trying to take control of him because they're worried about him. They're concerned for him. They think he's stressed and overworked and perhaps out of his mind. His surging popularity, the opposition of the religious leaders, his inability to even take care of himself and eat has got to be on their minds as well as his uh, the, the stories about him being out all night in prayer uh, in the wilderness, this new uh, burgeoning movement is, is gathering so much attention. His family is deeply concerned for him and want to bring him back home to set him straight. Meanwhile, in the middle of this sandwich of, of family, the religious leaders are accusing Jesus of being in league with the devil himself. And it's in this passage where we gain in instruction about what it means to follow Jesus truly. This is a passage about foes and families, foes and families, those who oppose Jesus, blaspheming him and aligning him with the devil and those who are closely associated with Jesus, his family members. And there's two families on display, that family that's biological and then the family that's spiritual. And in studying a passage like this, we are confronted with the most important question in the universe, uh, the question that really is to be asked to every one of us about who we are and who we belong to. It's the question posed to us in verse 33. Jesus asks a profound question, who are my mother and brothers? He's asking who really is dedicated to him, who really is loyal to him. And that's what we see on display. It's a question about discipleship and a question about obedience and a question about the forgiveness of sins. It's an important question for all sinners to hear. And so let's look at it briefly in those, those three categories. First, let's look at the family, the first family, the royal family of Jesus, and then we'll look at the foes of Jesus briefly, and then we'll look at the family of Jesus that consists not of his physical family, but his spiritual family. So the title of this sermon, Foes and Families, we start by looking at Jesus's biological family, we'll look at the enemies of Jesus, and then we'll look at his spiritual family. First, his biological family. You can see them listed in chapter 6, verse 3, his mother, his four brothers, James, Joseph, uh, Judas, and Simon, and at least two sisters by inference. So Jesus was likely part of this, this uh, probably a normal-sized family in the ancient culture. And, and the family is coming because the crowd is surging in verse 20, so that the mathetes, the disciples, were not even even able to, it says, eat bread in Greek. It's, it's uh, just a way of saying he couldn't even, there wasn't even time to have a morsel of food. There wasn't even a moment of respite or relief. Jesus was so sought after, so hounded by the crowds. The previous passage said the crowd was in danger of crushing him. And so he had a boat ready for the getaway. This was the, the massive popularity of Jesus, and his family is concerned that, verse 21, he's out of his mind. 
And it's not clear there whether that's just the crowd saying that and the family being concerned about their reputation, which mattered in this culture, the name of the family uh, being maligned. But whatever it was, I'm sure it was out of concern, genuine concern for the welfare of Jesus. But that concern was misplaced. You see, even Jesus' immediate family members at this point in the story, were not on his side. They were not his true family. They were not his true disciples. You see, they were associated with Jesus because he was their flesh and blood in part. He was the the divine stepbrother to them. He was uh, part of their family line. And Jesus's affiliation with his family shows that just being close to Jesus, even in a familial way, did not equate to being a disciple. You see, Jesus's immediate family was skeptical and doubting about Jesus's welfare and about Jesus's plan, about Jesus being outside of the will of God. What he's doing isn't good for him. You can hear his mother's concern. You can see the brothers mounting up as the muscle. They're going to go grab Jesus and they're going to take charge of him, a word used in the Gospel of Greek for arresting someone. They're going to put their arms on Jesus and say, we've got to get you out of here. You're stressed, you're overworked, you're in trouble. And when they arrive on the scene in verse 31, they're standing outside and and they can't even get to Jesus. He's likely uh, pressed in with so many people that they send someone in to say, hey, Jesus, your mom is calling. And we all know what that sounds like, don't we? The voice of your mom calling you. It's time to come in. It's time to come in. I didn't mean to make you cry. I'm making some of the freshmen cry. Sorry. It's a familiar voice. You're out playing and mama says, it's time for dinner. It's time to come in. I told you to take out the trash 37 times. (laughs) Whatever it is, the sweet, sweet voice of your mom is a familiar one. And now Jesus, the adult, Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the rightful king of Israel, hears the voice of his mother saying, it's time to come back home. But Jesus knows the Jesus who always obeyed his mother in his childhood. He knows in this case, his mother is wrong and her concerns are misplaced. And so he doesn't come when they call him because he has a higher calling. Jesus's family does not know what it means to truly follow Jesus, to reverence him, to trust him, to know that he is Lord and none else are. That's the biological family of Jesus. What about the foes of Jesus? Well, this could be a complicated uh, question and pastorally it often is. Uh, Especially when you get to verse 29 and 30, there's lots of people who've come to me and said, I think I've committed the unpardonable sin, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, an unforgivable sin, the one that Jesus mentions here and and actually is featured in, in all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all talk about this unpardonable sin. I think Mark makes it the most clear what it is, but to understand it, you have to understand who Jesus is talking to here. Because I don't think there's people here 
who have committed the unpardonable sin by definition. I'll help you understand that briefly. Verse 22, the teachers of the law, these are the scribes, the lawyers, the experts in the Old Testament. They're in league with the Pharisees mentioned earlier, and they've been sent in some consortium, some group, some fact-finding mission from Jerusalem, it says, and they have an accusation, and it's that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul in the original. It's a name based on the Old Testament Canaanite false god. It's Baal or Baal, you call him, a derivation of his name a mockery of his name by the people of Israel, called him Beelzebub, probably just because Beelzebub sounds funnier than Beelzebul, but Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. Uh, In other words, he's the master of all demons, uh, disgusting flies kind of a god, and what his name originally likely meant is something like the Prince of Glory. And what they're saying is that Jesus is not on God's team at all. He's actually with the devil, He's part of the prince of demons, and and they couldn't deny that what he was doing was valid. He was genuinely driving out demons, and so they said these exorcisms that are making Jesus famous, these healings, and this supernatural authority that he's manifesting must mean that he's in league with the dark powers, and Judaism for centuries to follow would accuse Jesus of sorcery. And so this accusation is one that would stay for a long time. But Jesus answers it quite simply by way of parable. How can Satan drive out Satan, verse 23? And he just tells some very brief stories, stories that are familiar to you if you studied American history because Abraham Lincoln quoted this verse famously in American history talking about uh, the divided union. Uh, I don't remember which speech it was. It was the divided house speech. I think it was in preparation for the the Lincoln-Douglas debates, which he lost. So all that to say that, that Jesus uses an illustration that a kingdom cannot continue if it is not united. How in the world would it make any sense that a house could continue on in, in accord, in unity, in solidarity if the house was not united? So if Jesus was with Satan, this doesn't make any sense. Verse 26, if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, his end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Jesus, in a, in a picturesque way, is showing the image that his ministry is unique because he is now plundering the realm of Satan. That he is now entering into this world and establishing his kingdom, a kingdom of righteousness, a kingdom of rescue. And through this gospel that he's announcing, he is gathering up saints and he is forgiving sinners and he is showing the power of God over the power of darkness and he is plundering the strong man's house. Satan has been put on call. He has been uh, delegated and, and Uh, put aside, and he is no longer in the same place he was before the incarnation of Christ, coming into this human world and demonstrating the superior power of God and the salvation plan from long ago. That's what's on display here. And it's easy to get distracted in this passage about the sin against the Holy Spirit. But I don't think it's something that needs to be of ultimate concern to you in one sense. And it's something you need to be warned against in another sense. 
in the first sense, where it's not an ultimate concern. If you have a soft conscience and you've thought, perhaps I've sinned the unpardonable sin, I think that's proof that you haven't. And here's why. The unpardonable sin is is quite technical here. It's called blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, verse 24, and it's called unforgivable, guilty of an eternal sin. Mark goes on to explain why Jesus would say something so surprising in verse 30. He said that because they were saying he has an evil spirit. You see, these false teachers were experts in the religion of Israel. They knew the Old Testament. They understood Messianic promises. They had been awaiting the Messiah. And when the Messiah came, they not only rejected him, they accused him of being opposed to the plan of God. This is an explicit and decisive rejection with full knowledge of Jesus' claim of who he is. If rejecting Jesus was the sin that is unforgivable, all of us would remain unforgiven, right? And so it can't be the regular sin of blasphemy. It can't be the taking of the Lord's name in vain. It cannot be mishandling uh, things that are sacred related to the Holy Spirit. All of those things are, are terrible and egregious sins. None of those things are forgivable are unforgivable. Careful. (laughs) Misspeaking during a sermon, for example, not the unforgivable sin. And so what is it? Well, technically speaking, you have to understand that it is this explicit and decisive rejection and informed repudiation of Jesus and attribution of the Holy Spirit's work through Jesus to Satan. And so usually a person who's concerned about their sin being unforgivable, number one, doesn't even understand what the unforgivable sin is enough to commit it. And number two, has this heavy and sensitive burden and conscience that says, I want to be forgiven. You see, these religious leaders had no desire to be forgiven. They wanted no part of what Jesus was offering. And with full knowledge of Jesus' claims and in full display of Jesus' power, they are so concerned to make sure that their own human religion be uh, protected and authenticated, that they are willing to look at the work of God in Jesus and instead of ascribing it to the Holy Spirit, they ascribe it to Satan himself. And this is an unforgivable sin. This passage serves as a warning, though. I don't think anyone here has committed the unpardonable sin. But I do think that there's a great danger here, a danger that the author of the book of Hebrews goes in to talk about in Hebrews chapter 6 and Hebrews chapter 10. There is something quite frightening about sinning against God in the rejection of Jesus Christ, in full knowledge of his work as Savior. The old Christians called it apostasy. 
And there's no way to tell when a person is truly apostate because there are those like the prodigal son who turn their back on the father and and come back to him in time. But there are those described in the Bible here and in the book of Hebrews who never turn their uh, way back to God again. And in their final and dismissive rejection that's informed when they repudiate the Lord Jesus Christ and his saving power and attribute everything he does not to God but to man and to the kingdom of Satan, they are, or I can even say, you are in danger of committing a sin that cannot be forgiven because you have ultimately rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. There are lots of young people who came to the master's college for the 70, 80, however many years this place has been around who used to worship and claim to know the Lord Jesus Christ and sing along with all the songs and study the Bible and and think about how their life should relate to a biblical worldview who because of the temptation of sin because of trials in their lives, because of a a failure to stay close to Jesus and a rejection of who Jesus is, walked away from God. Look, I don't believe you can lose your salvation because if you could, you would. But I do believe that the Bible is very clear that these warnings in Scripture exist to encourage you to keep following Jesus. The love that you have for Christ at this young age that's being formed and encouraged in your life and in your studies now and in your involvement in church now, it only needs to be fanned all the more and it ought never to be neglected because sin can be so deceptive. And you see it here, the covenant people of God, the experts in the Old Testament had a spiritual blindness to their eyes and the hardness of their hearts was only authenticated as they saw the work of God in Christ through the spirit of God and attributed not to God at all. That's the foes of Jesus. Quickly and in conclusion, what about the real family of Jesus? Verse 32, a crowd Usually a negative word in Mark. It's just the big boisterous group following Jesus around, wanting the benefits. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. And Jesus, wise Jesus, sees those seated around him, eagerly listening to the Savior, hanging on his every word, marveling at his majesty, wondering about the implications of his kingdom, uh, weighing what it means to truly follow after him, who are going to lean into his hard teachings, who are realizing that the social rejection they will experience from their Jewish friends and family may be so difficult for them to bear that they may never speak to their families again. He looks at these These eager disciples in this newly formed circle sitting at the master's feet and after being summoned by his mother and brothers answers his own question by saying, here is my mother and brothers. These 
Jesus isn't being cold-hearted. Jesus will care for his mother until the day he dies, even on the cross, ministering to her and providing for her. Jesus loved his mother and loved his brothers. But Jesus had a deeper and higher love for those who would be his spiritual and eternal family, for those who would do God's will. Verse 35, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Doing God's will is to be in step with the revelation of God. It's to realize what God is doing in the incarnation of Jesus, in his righteous life, in his sacrificial death, and in his impending resurrection. All of that will be the revealed will of God. And those who are truly part of his family will center their lives no longer around the earthly familial unit. They'll center their lives around Jesus and they will be his family. And what will unite them is not a common ethnicity or ancestry or family name or handed down religion. What will unite them to Jesus for all time is the depiction of their status in verse 28. Maybe the most beautiful verse in the entire Gospel of Mark. So much emphasis on the sin that's unforgivable in verse 29 that I think too many people pass over verse 28. I tell you the truth, Jesus said. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. Friend, I'm happy you're going to college. Have your sins been forgiven? Look, I'm excited about what the next four years hold for all of you. But the most important question is not what dorm you're being crammed into. It's do you know God savingly? Have you had your sins washed by the Savior? Because it's the very nature of God to forgive sins. The book of Numbers, chapter 14, Yahweh is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. I mean, this is the very nature of our kind God and Savior. He he is a God who is eager to forgive, slow to anger. Psalm 103, he does not deal with us according to our sins. And when Jesus would pray with his disciples, he would say, forgive us our debts as we we forgive those who have sinned against us. Jesus would remind his disciples that God forgives those who forgive others. And the preaching of the book of Acts would be a preaching based on the the centrality of forgiveness. Repent, Peter would preach in Acts chapter 2, and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And as the aged apostle would write in 1 John 1, that when we confess Christ, he cleanses us of all our unrighteousness. What is that? It's forgiveness. And the author of Hebrews would tell those those believers that need to press on and endure that they know that they cannot be forgiven apart from the shedding of blood. Hebrews 9.22. And all our hearts, every forgiven person resonates with Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. 
You see, your true spiritual identity does not come from affiliation or ancestry or ethnic identity. The insiders are becoming outsiders in the gospel of Mark. And the outsiders are becoming insiders because to identify with God's will and purpose in this world is to be part of Jesus's family. His forever family is a forgiven family. And so he says in verse 28, I tell you the truth, all sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. And does that make your heart sore? If it does, it's because you understand what it means to be forgiven. Father, thank you for your kind love for us, manifest in the cross of Christ that forgives us of all our sins and transgressions. God, if there's any here who do not know Jesus savingly, would you open their eyes and show them their need to be washed and cleansed and forgiven? Father, thank you so much for the kindness on display in Jesus. In his name, amen.